I usually have a flash of an idea go through my brain whenever I don't have a piece of paper at hand or a microphone or a camera or a person to talk to to remember it later. And then what happens? Not forget about it. So then I think to myself, well, well, Carmageddon, how, how good could it have been, really? If you can't remember it, 10 minutes later, 20 minutes later, two days later, how good, how good was the idea? You know what, man? Every idea of mine's good. Every one of them. Because they're mine. Hey, I'm not going to lie. I, I've been really judgmental of people in the past for the shitty amount of preparation they put into a performance of any kind. You know, like you get paid to public speak and that's your time to shine and you show up and you don't have a speech prepared. That's bullshit, man. Especially if they're paying you. Like figure your shit out. And this podcast thing is no exception. I feel like such a dick because I've been really critical of production value in the past. And, um, you know, how much effort people put into their show matters. And some people put in almost no effort into the show. And here I am, like, finally doing it. I'm finally pulling the trigger, sitting in the cockpit as opposed to the armchair at home, right? And it's difficult, dudes, because there's a little bit of a learning curve. If, if you're not a sound engineer and trained and familiar with lingo and terminology and kind of like the workflow, the way the editors are, are set up, then there's a learning curve. But even after that, it takes a lot of organization to keep your shit together. You know, I'm just, I'm using Anchor FM, for example. And Anchor FM is a pretty well put together site. They have quite a limited, um, excuse me, they have a decent selection of transitions, for example, and background music. It's pretty easy to set up a workflow and get it all going. But that does take some time. Like, for example, my first show that I put together on Anchor took me probably like an it took me like an hour to do it. I think it's five minutes long. But my second one that I did, that one is like 15 minutes long or maybe it's 18 and almost 19 minutes long. And it took me an hour, right? It got a little bit a little faster. Uh, some of us spend hours just doing the talking part. Like I have a show coming up with with Dan tonight at seven, just a couple hours. And we are going to talk for two hours. Like that's our, that's our time slot. And I'm just one, my wife and I are just one guest that Dan has per week. He, he does four, four shows, four shows a week with guests. And then on top of that, he does a church service on Sundays. I want to say thank you, Dan, for having me on your show. And I also want to say thank you for caring enough about the quality to try to make everything go well ahead of time with the sound checks and ensuring that we're using good equipment and we have good connections 
so that you can minimize your own editing and continue to put out quite a lot of content week to week of good, good quality. I haven't decided where I've landed on this yet. Kind of a theme of this show is a meandering ebb and flow of monologuing, which I refer to as third shelf monologuing because in the pilot episode, I went to say something after making a really lame joke and I choked on my own vodka. And the title stuck because that's how I roll. I'm not an old man. And sometimes my body hurts in ways that I find offensive. Like right now, my left foot's cramping for no fucking reason. All right, I wrote a post earlier in the week. I say earlier in the week, it was yesterday, Thursday the 8th. And I want to talk about it. The smallest thing that we can see with a light microscope is about 500 nanometers. A nanometer is one billionth of a meter. So the smallest thing that you can see with a light microscope is about 200 times smaller than the width of one of your hairs on your head. Bacteria are about 1,000 nanometers in size. Escherichia coli is a typical gram-negative rod bacterium. Its dimensions are those of a cylinder one to two micrometers long with a radius about a half a micrometer. Just for the record, that's still pretty small. And you can see it with a light microscope. Each SARS-CoV-2 virion is approximately 50 to 200 nanometers in diameter. We already have a problem here. How do they find it in the first place? And once they have it, how do they handle it? Who's they? The lab techs. After they have a specimen, how can they see it? And what are they seeing? Coronavirus was cultured for the first time in human embryonic. And just so we're all clear, an embryo is what the left refers to as a quote, unwanted clump of cells or a fetus, end quote. but it is in fact a baby human being inside of the womb. COV was cultured for the first time in human embryonic tracheal organ cultures by Tyrell and Bino in 1965, named as Corona due to crown-like appearance of the surface projections on electron microscopy. In fact, the reason the species was selected is that a chromosome deletion results in the monkey tissue not producing interferons. Interferons are supposed to signal immune system response in neighboring cells, meaning the monkey tissues are more likely to be infected and more likely to be hiding epigenetic trigger switches. 
But here's how they allegedly isolate the first Korean victim of SARS-CoV-2. And I have quoted from an article. Quote, the patient's oropharyngeal samples were obtained by using UTM trademark kit containing three milliliters of viral transport media, citing Copan Diagnostics Incorporated from Murrieta, California. So I went and looked into Copan, Copan Diagnostics Incorporated in Murrieta, California. And I looked up this universal transport media kit. The media kit's kind of a it's kind of a fun thought experiment. You kind of have to read the details of the package insert before you really start to wonder what the fuck it's for. They cut the Vero cell monolayer into a 65 nanometer thick slice using some apparatus that, as far as I know, somebody creates somewhere else and then calibrates. I don't know who's trained to use it. It's probably not automated, right? Anyway, then they take this sample, let's just say, and they look at it through a transmission electron microscope, which is sometimes abbreviated TEM, as opposed to an SEM, which is a scanning electron microscope. And transmission electron microscopes and scanning electron microscopes have their differences. But electron microscopes, in general, have a range of disadvantages, and these are critical for you to think about. They are extremely expensive. In fact, everything I'm going to talk about really underscores how expensive they are to obtain and run. For one thing, the sample preparation is often much more elaborate. It's necessary to coat the specimen with a very thin layer of metal, such as gold, so the metal is able to reflect the electrons. That all by itself is cost prohibitive for just about any Tom, Dick, and Harry. And what does that mean? That means you have to have a corporate sponsor, right? What could go wrong? Also, the sample must be completely dry. This makes it impossible to observe living specimens. It's not possible to observe moving specimens. They're dead, which makes me wonder, what are we actually looking at in these pictures? If it isn't moving, how do we know when we're seeing what we see? Anytime you see a picture of what appears to be a virus infecting a host cell, how do we know, since we don't see it in motion, that that isn't literally something coming out of the cell? Because you can't take a picture of it after that either. It's already dead, so it's not moving anymore. And it can't move anymore. See the problem here? Did you know it's not possible to observe color? Electrons do not possess a color. The image is only black and white. 
which makes me wonder why we see so many colored images of viruses. Makes me think of Red 40 food dye. You know why they put Red 40 in food? So you'll buy it. So you'll buy it. So you'll, your kids will want to eat it. Electron microscopes require more training and experience in identifying artifacts that may have been introduced during the sample preparation process. And if you read about where the samples come from and how they have to be prepared, no wonder. These are the tiniest, these are the tiniest of particles. They would have us believe they're isolating and keeping clean. The energy of the electron beam is very high. The samples exposed to high radiation. Again, this makes it immediately dangerous to life and nothing can live. The sample's dead. Space requirements are really high for these machines. They might need a whole room. The maintenance costs are high. And the problem about all this is that it provides like a, it's gatekeeping. It's a, it's a kind of gatekeeping for the academia. In order for you to even get a job in one of these labs, you would have to interview with people that would more or less be interviewing you to see how manipulative you, or how um, easily manipulated you are, or how much you have already swallowed the Kool-Aid, or whether or not you're willing to sign an ironclad non-disclosure agreement. They could land you in prison or worse. None of this work can be done in your garage. But what about peer review? We're always talking about peer review and how important peer review is for scientific papers. We need to make sure that people, the original researchers, aren't, aren't pulling a fast one. You guys ever hear about that group of college kids who basically just claimed they had peer-reviewed research and it was published. That happens. So how many people do we think are qualified to run one of these machines, one of these electron microscopes? From start to finish, everything, all of it. How to maintenance it, how to ensure it's calibrated properly, how to run it, how to prepare a sample for it, how to analyze said sample. How many of those same people are epidemiologists? People who study epidemics and where they stem from and how they travel. And how many of those can interpret the same results? How many can compile the data and chart and graph it to make sense? How many aren't greatly subsidizing their efforts with AI data banks of unknown origin? Or if it is known, is it reproducible? Where did it come from? Who had the final say? Who peer reviewed that research? Everything that you take for granted from the CDC is a part of some giant academic pyramid scheme. And, and it may not even be intentional. I'm just telling you that the whole story is never is never there. And whatever we're being told about viruses and epidemics, 
particularly regarding this one, is a whole lot of horse shit. There's a reason you feel that that's true, and the skeptic in you is still not willing to listen. Still, still hanging on, maybe thinking, well, I mean, it sounds like this big conspiracy, but there's just no proof. And then how could anybody do that? I couldn't tell you a single good reason for a pandemic other than to restructure the plantation, to change the money, to move the money around, to change the economy completely, to just terraform the economy. So many different things are done for until specific conditions are met. We're in a situation right now in this country where people's freedoms to go get their needs met have been locked down and secured through the monopoly of force by the government saying things like you can't assemble, you can't have a restaurant full of people, you can't have a concert, you can't have a sporting event, they don't want crowds. It's okay for BLM to protest in the street. It's okay for the Chaz Chopians of Seattle to congregate downtown, not wearing masks. It's okay for police and politicians to show up in photographs. It's okay for Andrew fucking Cuomo, satanic overlord of New York, to be caught downtown without a mask on. It's okay for Governor Fuck Fuck Inslee of Washington to show up without a mask and say he was exercising his freedom of speech a mere two weeks after deliberately tanking this beautiful state's economy. Governor Whitmer ought to be tarred and feathered. Sorry, not sorry. I don't believe this FBI sting operation. I don't believe this foiled plot to kidnap this governor. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. It doesn't make sense. But you know, I've been wrong before, and I'll be wrong again. This started out as the third shelf monologues. To, to be honest, I haven't, haven't had a drink in since the inception. And this is still light hearts in a dark world, so I'd like to end on a more positive note. Pretty recently, I picked up this book that's pretty good, and I wanted to just give it a quick pitch. Because I heard about it while asking some questions about canning. And an associate on Twitter said, hey, my wife wrote this book. You should check it out. So I did. And I believe in supporting homesteaders whenever possible. Even through modern and highly technological means, like purchasing a book on Amazon.com. Say what you will. how I chose to do it. The book's called The Farm Girl's Guide to Preserving the Harvest. How to can, freeze, dehydrate, and ferment your garden's goodness. 
by Anne Asetta Scott. Anne and her family left their lives in suburban America to live a homesteading, self-sustaining lifestyle in the Pacific Northwest. Their husband and their two youngest of seven children, they sought to reclaim a simpler and traditional way of living, changing their lives for the better. And that's what I want for my family. And so I thought, heck, heck, I'm going to do it. It's an $18 book. So I get it in the mail. And the first thing I see is that this is a very high quality book. It's a uh, very thick, durable pages made for kitchen use. It's pretty rare actually to find materials of this good quality these days for such inexpensive pricing. The covers got like a semi-gloss. Pages are like a semi-gloss. They're thick. Nice pictures. It's well organized. It's easy to read. It's written in plain speak. There's good practical information in this book. And the foreword was by Joel Salatin, one of my personal inspirations for homesteading. I love everything that man does for real. So I have included the book's title and a link in the show notes. And I wanted to say thank you again to the Aceta Scots for turning me on to this book. And um, I'm excited to literally try everything inside of it. I mean, there's not, it's not a huge amount of different things. It's not, it's not an enormous book. It's not a, but it's, it's a lot of good information, just the fundamentals, some easy recipes, things on fermentation, hot water bath canning, steam juicing, and that's it. Cue the outro.